0: Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Uh, I am joined by my friend Arthur Brooks. Arthur is a professor at the Harvard Business School, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, former head of the American Enterprise Institute, French horn player, extraordinary and joyous person to talk with. Good morning, Arthur. How are you?
1: Good morning, Hugh, my old friend. How are you? It's been a long time since, well, it's been a few months at least since we've talked in person.
0: I am better because I read from strength to strength, finding success, happiness, and deep purpose in the second half of life. I've been tweeting about from strength to strength for about a month because I got a pre-publication a copy of your new book from strength to strength with top dropped yesterday. It's number six on Amazon. Number six, which is pretty amazing for a book about getting old. And Arthur, I just got to tell you, you nailed it. And I'm going to... I'm going to go here, there, and yawn in the book. But tell me, generally, are you uh, surprised by the react? Number six at Amazon for a self-help book, which is not really a self-help book, is pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, I, was, I, I didn't know what to expect, quite frankly. I mean, I wrote this book over eight years, and it wasn't research. It was me-search. I mean, I'm a social scientist, but, and I brought my whole toolkit to designing the second half of my life. It dropped on Tuesday, on, on February 15th. And it went to number one by noon that day. Amazon sold out nationwide. Still, by the way, it's still available at barnesandnoble.com and Amazon will restock, which is great. Sort of good news, bad news, right? When things are going crazy. I thought this was something for me and, and, and for people who were you know facing some of the issues that, that I was thinking about as I grew older. But of course, we all want the secrets to, we all want the, the investments that we can make such that, even whether we're 25 or 45 or 65, for being happier when we're 75. And this book shows. I mean, my promise in this book is if you read it, you won't be the happiest person in the world necessarily, but you will be happier as you get older because I found the seven things that the happiest people in life all do to get happier.
0: And lay it out, and you also... Well, I'm going to not give away too much of the book. I want people to get it, but I also want people to understand... It's not just for those approaching 50 or 60 or 70. If you have a parent who you are helping or a grandparent who you are helping to adjust to the second curve, which we'll discuss. Have you heard that children of aging parents are buying this book for them, Arthur?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is actually a lot of what I'm hearing. So the young people are in two categories. There are people in their 40s and 50s. Who think that, look, like my dad or my mom, they really, I mean, they got to get their act together here. They're chasing the old days. They're unhappy, and they're getting them this book. And then there are a lot of people in the 20s and 30s who say, I wonder if there's something that I can do to raise the odds that I'm going to be happier when I get there. So those are the two types of people who are younger who are doing it. And then a ton of people, you're in my age, who are basically saying, look, I'm okay But I see some dark clouds and I don't like it. And I want to blow them away with some of the things that the happiest people have done. And that's what's in the
0: book. Now, there are many places to start, but I want to start with your Huck Finn moment, Uh, the falling tide moment. And I call it your Huck Finn moment because, my goodness, if you didn't have this story, you'd have to make it up. But it's, it's true. I believe you tell people about the falling tide moment.
1: Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, this was uh, it was years ago. I mean, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and and I was enthusiastic. I was a I loved fishing. I mean, it was really what I wanted to do with all my time. And I took my paper route money and bought you know re rod and tackle and, and books because we didn't have the internet back then. And, uh, and, and I, I used to go to visit my aunt on the Oregon coast. And I said, you know, what I really want to learn how to do is catch those big fish in the ocean off the rocks. And so I went the first day and did that. My, my mother, who was an artist in the Pacific Northwest, snapped a picture of me unhappily catching nothing. I mean, <laughs> no bites, nothing. I mean, it's like it was the craziest thing. And I was there for two hours with no bites and an old wizened mariner from the, from the from the local town called Lincoln City. He goes walking. Up. He said, hey, kid, I've been watching you. I said, yeah. And he said, uh, I mean, these days, some old guy says that and he gets arrested. But anyway, he uh, said, I've that's been watching. What I immediately
0: thought, by the way, if you're approached by an old guy today, he's going away in the
1: car. But go on. I know. Somebody call the cops anyway. But it was all good. He said he said you're, you're probably not getting any bites. Right. And I said, no. How'd you know? He says, because you're doing it wrong. So, what do you say? What do you mean I'm doing it wrong? He says, you got to do it during the falling tide when the tide is going out fast. That's the only time the fish are biting. He says, that doesn't make sense. The fish are all leaving. He says, no, no, no. When the falling tide is happening, when the water's going out, when everything's going away, that's when the game fish and the plankton are going crazy and the bait fish, I mean, and the game fish bite everything and you'll catch all, everything you want. So sure enough, he says it's half an hour from now. He has his line, too, his rod, too. We put in our lines right when the falling tide starts, and we're pulling them out one after the other. I mean, it was a blast. And, at, you know, half an hour of this, 30 fish later, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting on the rocks. I don't even know this old guy. He lights up a cigarette, and he's getting kind of philosophical. And he said, you know, kid, there's only one mistake you can make during a, uh, during a falling tide. I said, what's that? He said, not having your line in the water. That, that is
0: so great. That's on page 190. It's one of my five checks. There's only the one mistake in life is not having your line in the, in the tide. Now, if you go on to... Yeah. Yeah. This, this There is a falling tide to life, you continue. The transition from fluid to crystallized intelligence. We'll come back to that. This is an intensely productive and fertile period. It is when you jump from one curve to the other. So the falling tide of life... Give us the age bracket, Arthur.
1: So the falling tide to life that people typically find is that they're in the, the, the prime of life. They're, they're economically pretty successful, or at least they're doing okay, better than they were before. They're in pretty good physical health. It's like 36 to 52, something like that. But they're noticing they're less interested in their job than they used to be. Maybe they're losing some of the kind of the fine edge. Some of the young people are coming in, and, and it's just not as fun as it used to be. And, you know, that's a tell that there's something going on in your skills, but it's really a tell that something is going on neurologically for us, and, and which was pretty much unknown not that long ago. It's kind of like, I don't know, maybe we just get tired of things. Maybe we just burn out. What's going on is that you've got a first kind of intelligence that goes up like crazy in your 20s and your early 30s. And it starts to decline in your late 30s and 40s. And that's when people start to feel burned out and start to seeing young kind of young bucks with more energy than them. And and they start to feel kind of unhappy about what they were doing. But the good news is that that's just a period between your first success curve, your first intelligence and your second intelligence because you get a second wind. You do. I do. We all do. If you know where it is, that's the falling tide. The old old stuff is going away. But the new tide's coming in, and the fish are going to bite if you're willing to look for that next curve.
0: Now, what I want to stress to people, From Strength to Strength is the title of the book, From Strength to Strength. And we've already hit the lunch rule of seven mentions per segment. Arthur's going to be around the next segment, and he's going (laughs) to stay around for the interview with Hugh Hewitt. So you'll hear From Strength to Strength a few more times. But when I went to dinner uh, to brunch on Sunday with my old friend Mark Roberts, a uh, pastor buddy and his wife and, and the fetching Mrs. Hewitt, I described to him the two curves and I said, the key takeaway is fluid intelligence, crystallized intelligence. And I said, I'm never going to forget this because you, whenever, Ian uh, e. Forster said, you know you're being influenced when you say I might have written that myself if I'd had more time. I would never have written that, but I wish I would have written that because it it is the perfect description of what we're talking about, expand on fluid versus crystallized.
1: Okay, so for the longest time, psychologists have noticed that people tend to fall in one or two kinds of genius. The first kind of genius is kind of the Elon Musk genius. It's the the, the Mark Zuckerberg genius, where pretty early on you come up with these eye popping inventions, new ideas nobody's ever come up with before. This tends to happen in your 20s and early 30s, but it's very rare that it happens beyond your late 30s and your, and your 40s, and so these people tend to peak early and fade early as well. Now, there are guys like Elon Musk, who's you know kind of an outlier, but most people, entrepreneurs like this, and we all have kind of a version of this, they noticed there was a second kind of genius that came really late. These were historians. These were the great master teachers. These were the Dalai Lamas out there, who basically much, much later, they developed this this preternatural wisdom that they were able to share with a lot of people. Well it took a little while before research caught up and said, actually we both get we all get both curves. Your first curve is your innovation curve, where you can solve problems faster than other people and work harder than other people. Later on you get your teaching curve. Where you have a lot of knowledge and you know how to put it together and explain it incredibly clearly to other people. So think of like early on, it's your inventor. Later on, it's your David McCullough. It's your historian. It's your master teacher. Interestingly, and in your alma mater, the you know fair Harvard, my employer today, that the best teaching evaluations go to professors over seventy. That's not because people feel sorry for them. It's because they have the most crystallized intelligence. You're teaching intelligence. It screams upward in your 50s and 60s, and it stays high in your 70s and 80s. And if you've got your marbles, even in your 90s, if you're trying to do what you're good at at 30, you're going to be frustrated at 60. You need to jump from the fluid intelligence curve to the crystallized intelligence curve, learn these new skills, adjust your career, adjust your job, and be happy.
0: And have a plan to do it. I mean, Arthur, if there's one thing that people will get from strength to strength, is that this is not a haphazard transition. I've told everyone, I've got a contract through uh, my 72nd birthday and the second two more presidential elections, and I intend to retire from the radio at that point. And I hope to become the special envoy to Northern Ireland, which doesn't require... Uh, confirmation, because you get to live in London and Ulster. But whatever happens, I got a plan because I am not going to yeah. you know, fall over dead in my chair, not doing some things like going to New Zealand for two months. There are some things I want to get done. But you lay it out. You've got to make this plan. I made this plan years ago. You made this plan years ago. I can't believe you planned to leave AEI 10 years after you got there, but you articulated that before and you drive it home. You have always had a plan.
1: Right. And, and this is the thing about being a social scientist. One of the beautiful things, I mean, there's a lot wrong with getting it being a Ph.D. social scientist. You suffer a great deal. But but the great thing about it is that you understand the nature of being able to manage yourself if you if you so choose. I mean, it's a little like a, a surgeon taking out his own appendix. But but I wrote this book because I wanted to lay I wanted to understand the science so that, you know, my talents and my emotions and my feelings were not going to manage me. I was going to manage them, and I was going to play to my maximum strength so I can love more, I can live more, and I can be happier according to what I do well. And when I was doing this research, I mean, this is an eight-year research project that was in a bunch of notebooks, and Esther, the, the fetching Mrs. Brooks, looked at it and said, you, you can't not publish that. What are you going to do? I mean, you're, you're actually not going to share that with anybody? That's not right. I published this book after I had written it for myself. It oh, I, twice it's as it's, long it's
0: going to serve a lot of people very well. Uh, pop quiz. Name me five friends not named Esther who are you are close to in your life.
1: Oh yeah. No, I actually do and I, I cultivated these friendships over the last eight years because at the beginning of this project I had a ton of deal friends, but not very many real friends. Yeah. And this is really important. And and the difference, I mean looking at the literature, it's enormously important because because loneliness is a killer, actually literally a killer. So I, I, you know, I cultivated my, my really my closest friendship with my, my buddy Frank Hanna, who lives in Atlanta. He's uh you know, he's a guy. The first time I met him years ago, he said, you know, I got a ton of friends. I don't need more just friends. You know, I need people who are gonna make me holy. This is I go to this is a guy I go to mass with. This is a guy who, who asks me, Hey buddy, when's the last time you went to confession? This is a guy who holds me accountable because he loves me. And we have a common love, which is our that you know our religious faith, but, but and, and we share ideas about our our grown kids and 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 our marriages and and so that's number one and that was a really really important close friendship that I've cultivated especially over the past ten years. Somebody else I really love out in California, Tully Friedman. He he he's the the founder of. Oh, we're coming Cullen back to him.
0: Friedman. We're coming back to him after the break. He's on my notes along with Jan Janura. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. This is the breaking news update. Secretary of State Blinken will address the U.N. at 10 a.m. Eastern time today. I'll be on special report tonight. I hope I'm not talking about an invasion of Ukraine even greater than the one that happened in 2014. I continue my conversation with Arthur Brooks. He's the author of the brand new book, From Strength to Strength. Professor at Harvard Business School. Professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Former head of AEI, social scientist, and French horn player extraordinaire. Former member of the Salem Editorial Board, by the way. Arthur, I cut you off when we went to the break. I thought you were going to talk about Chip Conley. You were going to talk about somebody else, though.
1: Yeah, no, I was going to talk about my friend Tony Friedman, who's this legendary private equity pioneer, He's 80 years old. He's not the same generation as me. And this is actually one of the critical points of making real friendships. It's very important that you have diversity in these friendships, diversity of viewpoint, diversity of experience, and diversity of age. And this is one of the things I clearly found in my research. And I thought, well, I'm going to deepen my relationships with the people that I love the most who are not my age. Tony totally Friedman is 25 years older than me. And, and I'm telling you, I love the guy. We go traveling all the time. I take him to Barcelona with me. You know, we, we try, we've been to India together. And it's just like seeing it through the eyes of somebody of a different generation who's got more crystallized intelligence than me is an incredibly enriching experience. He's changed my life. You know, this is a guy who he's really famous for his unbelievable business prowess. But for me, he's just somebody that I love.
0: You do not use the term, but I often use the term, the ladder of friendship. You've got to have people above you on the ladder and below you on the ladder, or you will be lonely. You can't have just people at the same level of the ladder. You've got to be up and down. Now, I was going to tell you about Jan Janura and at the same time talk with you about Chip Conley. Jan Janura is a wildly successful business person, along with his wife, Carol Anderson, and they sold their business, and they made a lot of money, and they bought a ranch, and they run a ministry. Now, they're Christians, but it's not a Christian ministry. It's TWA, twa TWA.us, The Wild Adventure. They get 12 people at a time to go up, go fishing and spend a week talking about serious stuff. Sometimes people bring their friends, sometimes they're strangers. But it sounded just like Chip Conley's gig because it's really intended to get people who are after the age of 40. There's a young guns program, but after the age of 40 to sit down and think what's next. And that's what Chip Conley did, too.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of convergence of this. My book really explains the science behind the, the phases of life and, and how to get from one phase to another. A lot of these other things have kind of experientially noticed that, that y- y- you better think anew about designing the back half of your life. And they're kind of applied things. Chip Conley's Modern Elder Academy in California is open to all takers. I mean, they've, they've got you know construction workers and CEOs that are going to his place in Baja, California. And Chip is a really interesting guy. I mean, the the key thing that Chip pointed out, and I talk a lot about in this book, I profile him in the book, is that, you know, we tend to think that, you know, 65 years old is kind of old. It's not old. If you're 20 and you're in good health, the actuarial tables say you have even odds of living to 90 as long as you don't smoke, misuse alcohol, and maintain a healthy body weight. This is really important. That means you have that your, your adult lifetime is 70 years long, and you're only halfway through it at age 55. You're 55 and you got half your adult life left to go. You better have a plan and you better not let those years manage you because it won't be, you won't be happy. You won't be healthy. You won't be serving. You won't be what you could live up to. If you have a plan so you can manage those years up to the best of your ability, doing all the kinds of things I talk about in this book,
0: like stop adding stuff, man, start, start taking cutting stuff. And, and by the way, now we're going to go to the heart success addiction and Uh, It's never been as bluntly put as it is from strength to strength, but strivers, Arthur is one. I am one. Pretty much everyone in broadcast is one word. People are strivers. They have a problem with success addiction. I don't, I'm lazy. I just as soon go to the movies every day, Arthur, but explain what success addiction is and explain why it's dangerous. The older you get.
1: Yeah. And by the way, Hugh, I've seen your schedule because I've guest hosted your show it is brutal because you've got six hours of prep, three hours on the air. And by the way, you're also the CEO of the Nixon Library. Not anymore. I so, retired.
0: I cut that out in November because I'm 65. It's time to cut back.
1: It's time to cut back because, yeah, that's right. You've only got 25 years in your adult life left or 30 years or something like that. Eighteen, so, my grandfather so, yeah. went to
0: 101 on his own wheels. I got a long way to go. God willing.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, good thing you're making a plan. And by the way, before just let me interject one thing about you, Hugh. Look, I've been, I've, been I've been a huge fan for many years. And so I've seen actually how your style and your career has changed. You've gone from the pure innovator curve in, in talk radio to the instructor curve. Look, you're the professor of talk radio. This show, I mean, look, news and views, man. I mean, this is a curated uh, experience of information, because you have the authority to do so. You know a million things. You bring in guests from all different points of view, from all different experiences. And in so doing, you're the David McCullough of talk radio. You and I've got
0: Dwayne place. and Adam and Ben and an amazing okay. team at Salem. But we're going to go to a break. We've got to talk about success addiction and breaking it. Yep, you're talking, success yeah, because one minute to the break. So tell people about success addiction before the break, and then they can go listen to the whole thing at the interview with Hugh Hewitt.
1: Okay. Success addiction is like any other addiction. Dopamine in the brain keeps you coming back and back and back and back for the hit, whether it's drugs or alcohol or tobacco. And for people who self-objectify to say, I'm a success machine, they hit the lever of success and the lever of success again and again and again, and they'll start to crowd out all the love in their life to hit the addiction machine again and again and again. Many people are workaholics. They're really success addicts.
0: And when we come back in the rest of this interview, which will be available at the interview with Hugh Hewitt later today, you will definitely want to know how to break that success addiction. And you need to go get from strength to strength. Amazon is sold out. They will restock. Barnesandnoble.com is not sold out. Go get it there or go to a bookstore. Arthur Brooks on Twitter, the professor of happiness, the professor of your life. Stay tuned, America. Back now with Arthur Brooks, the author of From Strength to Strength. Arthur, I want to go to page 29, a note to college students. You mentioned this on air, that they ought to take the oldest professors. Now, I want to give one qualification. I, I still teach. I've taken a couple of years off just to recharge. That's what sabbaticals are for. And I agree with you about older professors. I wish I had had that information at as an undergrad in law school, because it's almost unfailingly true, but it can be false, right?
1: Sure. Sure. I mean, there, there are outliers. There are extraordinarily gifted young professors who have a preternaturally high level of crystallized intelligence early on. But the typical pattern, and again, these are just averages, is that you're really good at innovating and great at research as a professor early on. And then later on, you become incredibly good at explaining everybody else's ideas, harvesting the ideas from the whole field, synthesizing them and explaining them to students so that the students can understand on the first pass.
0: Now, having put that in there, listen to Arthur about this. Find the best, oldest professors. you got a four-square box, young and old, good and bad. Find the good, old professors, and at least have one every semester. Now, Arthur, let's go to Thomas Aquinas and the Dalai Lama. You and I are the only two people who can do an interview and say, we spent a lot of time with the Dalai Lama. We got that going for us. I did it in 1996. You did it much more recently. He's the same guy then as he was when you talked to him. But I want people to understand, while there's a lot of Buddhist and Indian mysticism in From Strength to Strength, you're a hardcore Catholic, but you are open yeah. to understanding what it is that the East offers. Did you get any pushback from people thinking, wait a minute, Thomas Aquinas and the Dalai Lama, what is Arthur doing here?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, people, people wonder about this. And so people will, the, the, the book, by the way, is dedicated to my guru. And so people are going to think, oh, wow, he's, you know, he's studying with the masters of the East. And in point of fact, I have many teachers in India and I go to India every year to see his holiness, the Dalai Lama. We've been working together quite intensively for 10 years. He blurred this book. He endorsed this book, as a matter of fact. But my guru, as I explained in the book, on my own religious walk, my own development of of the the, the relationship that I have with my master, who is Jesus Christ, my guru, the one who leads me by the hand, is my wife, Esther. She's the one who's, you know, 10 steps ahead of me. She leads me in paths of righteousness. And and I call her my guru because I was studying with a, a South Indian master named Sri Notram Venkataraman. A I'm mystic, glad you said a that. Yogi. Yeah. <laughs> said, he, said, he asked me about my wife and I said, she's the one who takes me to mass every morning. She's the one who leads me in prayer, in my meditation, my rosary. And he said, she's your guru. And she really is. And this is the connection. Look, I mean... There, people find different paths to, to find what they're looking for in their life. The Lord wants me to be a Catholic. I truly believe that. I recommend it to absolutely everybody. But the one thing I say in this book that as a social scientist, not as a Catholic, is unambiguously true, is that if we deny the spiritual, the transcendental. the the physical parts of our life, we will be denying ourselves the happiness that we deserve. We must, especially as we move from the first to the second curve and, and intelligence, we must be on the path towards spiritual reality to see the bigger picture, to put ourselves in perspective. There is no other way to be happy and well by the end of life.
0: All right, Arthur, let's deal with the hardest question. Um, there are some people out there who are listening and they're saying, Oh, Arthur Brooks, Harvard AEI, Oh, Hewitt, Harvard radio show couple of successful guys talking about their friends and how easy life is and they don't know it and they go have another shot of bourbon. Um, okay. I, I believe deeply every single person can change the trajectory of their happiness pattern today. And I'm like Dennis Prager. It's a choice. Do you get some pushback from people to say it's too easy for you? You're too, you're too smart. You're a musician. You've got Esther you 've got wonderful children it 's too easy because I actually know it 's not too easy, but what do you say to them
1: the, it, the first part of the book has a very very interesting fact, which is that about half of the population after seventy gets happier, and the other half of the population becomes less happy to the end of their life and the ones who get less happy they tend to be the strivers they tend to be the people who have actually been the success addicts they t- but you, it's you and me. Yeah. It's you and me. And look, we manage our lives. We're the ones. Now, there's lots and lots of reasons for that. But the bottom line is you can be a middle class person of relatively modest economic ambition, but you're still a striver if you want to do a lot with your life. That, that's really important to keep in mind. And we all have to manage these things because the dynamics of love, the dynamics of work and life, they, they, it comes for all of us. We're all going to be facing these realities and the difference between your radio show and somebody's job at the department store is trivial compared to what the big dynamics are with respect to happiness.
0: It's about relationship. And I I want to make sure I land there. But first, I got to ask you, what are you afraid of, Arthur?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting thing because we all fear. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of failure. And I've been running on the hedonic treadmill, you know, this like run, 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 success, success, success. Because, you know, after a while it was for ambition, but after a while, a few years later, it's because I was being chased, man. I was being chased by failure about not making it. And I, you know, I've, I've, I've taken my career just down to the studs four times, classical musician. And I got my PhD, became an academic and I became a CEO. And now I'm just doing this happiness enterprise and, And and every time I'm afraid, what if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't work? And I wrote this book because, like, you can't live this way. You can't live with fear. Fear and love are opposites. Perfect love drives out fear. And psychologically, neurologically, they they occupy orthogonal parts of the brain. Love and fear truly are opposites, just as St. John the Apostle taught 2,000 years ago. So what's the solution to my fear and to your fear and to all of our fear? More love. Only love is the analgesic for the fear, is the only treatment for the fear. At the end of the day, you know, Jesus was asked, you know, by a Pharisee, look, the Ten Commandments, it's a lot to remember. Boil it down for me, Lord. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love. And then St. Augustine, 300 years later, was asked, like, even two, it's too much. Paraphrase it for me. He said, love and do what you will. Do you want to be free? Do you want to be happy?
0: So, so, Arthur, having said that, I, I also want to connect the audience. Arthur Brooks has bad days, weeks, and months. You have to. Yeah. And there's a bell curve in yeah. everything, including we all have a best day of the week and a worst day of the week. We have a best day of the month and a worst day of the month. We have a best year in our life and a worst year in our life. And if you've got someone sick in your life or you're only as happy as your least happy child, these are all things are true. What does Arthur Brooks do When you hit the rough patch, because it's inevitable in every life over and over again.
1: Number one, live the unhappiness, because the unhappiness is part of you, too. The biggest mistake that young people make today that I see in all of the data in all of my social science data is that young people are doing the opposite of the 60s. When it was if it feels good, do it today. If it's if it feels bad, fight it. If it feels bad, treat it. Your life requires unhappiness. Your, your suffering is very sacred. And in and, and point of fact, you will not find purpose and meaning unless you have a full range of experiences, including negative experiences. So t- here's what I do. Here's how I start today. I start each day with my prayers and I say thank you for the things that will bring me good feelings and thank you for the things that will bring me bad feelings because I want to be fully alive today to love and to serve.
0: That's very interesting because I begin my day based on a Martin Luther practice, the Our Father and the Nicene Creed. Then he said, go do whatever you want. So if Luther gives you a a pass, right, you're kind of, you're sitting pretty. All right, back to my notes. Um, There is a lot of suffering in this book, and I'm looking particularly at uh, St. Paul's famous thorn. And by the way, the new interpretation of the famous thorn, I've always read, I've always wondered about the thorn myself, and you have a new interpretation, maybe it's epilepsy. Now, as as yes. a, my my brother has epilepsy, and he's overcome it over his years. It's a very difficult thing to deal with until you deal with it. And so I have never understood that uh, James Madison, in Lynn Cheney's magnificent biography of him, is revealed to have had epilepsy. That's why he didn't serve in the war. That's why he doubted a lot of the teaching at the time. So suffering, you are right. you're a bear hug the suffering guy,
1: right? I am. I'm a Catholic. Look, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And, and you know, one of the things that to, to Christians all understand is that suffering is actually part of life. Now, you can submerge yourself. You can turn over the boat. It can be a health problem. Don't get me wrong. Major clinical depression, uh, anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, mood disorders and mental illness of all kinds must be treated. These are major. And, and we've been doing this horribly wrong in America by calling it a character issue. These are health issues. Yeah. But for the rest of us, this is part of life. Here's the interesting thing, Hugh. Happiness is not a feeling. Happiness is a combination of three macronutrients. So food is protein, carbohydrates, and fat. Happiness is enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. Those are the three. If you don't have them- Enjoyment,
0: satisfaction, purpose. All right. Go through
1: each. Exactly. Purpose requires suffering. There's not one person listening to this podcast- Who's not saying, yeah, you know what I found my purpose was, you know, that, that, week in, that week in southern Spain on vacation. No, 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 no. You found your purpose when you became ill, when you lost of that you love, when you got fired from that job, when you failed those classes in college, when you were put to the, the test and found to be resilient. That was your sense of purpose. And, and the truth is, if you try to avoid unhappiness, paradoxically, you will avoid
0: happiness. I want to conclude, uh, because people need to read this, talking about the boy in the well. You you saw the story last week, the boy died in the well. It's the same story. It's always the same story. I teach it in law school. Whenever a boy falls in the well, everything stops, and we try and get the boy out of the well. Sometimes successfully not, regardless of cost. We all try to get the boy out of the well. I think from strength to strength might get some older people out of the well if we give it to them. Do you believe that, and and I actually am living this experience right now with a member of the family who's just old and afraid. I mean, they're 80 and they're afraid and people get afraid of life as they get older as opposed to uh, happier. Do you think the book will help people at that age?
1: That's really part of the point. I wrote the book so that you could pick it up at any point in life and decide whether or not this is a current action plan or an investment strategy. That's the idea. And, you know, what I, I wrote it I initially, not even to publish it as a book. I wrote it to, you know, for my own notes. And, and part of it was, you know, every year what I do is I, I do my strategic plan for the rest of my life. Every year on my birthday I do this. A lot of people do this. And I wanted to look back on this book and say where, are, where am I in my strategic plan? What are the things that I'm actually falling down on? What are the things that I need to do? There's a lot in this book. There's a, a plan of current action. What do I need to do such so, so that I can diagnose the source of my fear, diagnose the source of my malaise, and actually take action right now? If you're 25, things that you can do to put in the bank your, your happiness 401K. But if you're 80 years old, the whole idea is there's a lot of research right now on what we can do to remediate in exactly this moment.
0: And that is in the book. Last question. Absolutely. There's a trucker. Man or woman listening to this right now, who is making forty five thousand dollars a year and is pressed by the cost of gas, who is unhappy with vaccine mandate. You know, our country is profoundly unhappy right now. Maybe the most unhappy it has been in my life. I'm 65 years old. And by unhappy, I don't mean divided. Sixty eight was worse. I mean, unhappy. That trucker is part of that unhappiness. What ought that individual man or woman do?
1: Now, the number one thing to keep in mind is that your happiness is proximate to you. The more you're thinking about things that are far away from you, that are that you can't control, the more that you're obsessing on politics, the more that you're obsessing on President Biden, on, on these things, it's important to be informed, don't get me wrong. But the more local you get, the more control and agency that you have, and that your love can be brought to bear on the levers in your life. If you're unhappy, Get more local.
0: So uh, I'll I'll give you my one takeaway and get your comment on, and then we'll conclude this, Arthur. Uh, I made a list of five friends after I finished from strength to strength. I said I got to right. work on these five. I got to make sure that these five are close and getting closer, and I'm getting rid of five because th- the demand is not worth the return, right? And so you tip away, you tip away. A- 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 and it's not being unchristian. I will help. It's just that you've got to cut losses and ad deposit Arthur congratulations are you surprised I mean number one on Amazon you've been there before but are you surprised
1: yeah I am I, I don't know I'm always surprised you know it's a, it's a funny thing you know when, when something goes right in your life you're always a little bit shocked I have to say and if I get to the point where I, I'm number one on Amazon and and presumably it'll do really well on these other national lists if I get to the point where I'm not surprised, woe be unto me. That's all I can say, because then my pride's getting the better of me.
0: <laughs> well, oh, okay, a bonus question. There's a lot on Aquinas in here. And I began to wonder, yeah. uh, no false humility for the doctor of the church, right? Do you think he knew uh, 500 years ago that we would be still talking about him today? No chance.
1: We look back on it oh, as if we Tom disagree.
0: Would,
1: you do? I, I think that he was basically, I, think, I believe he was offering up his work for the holy souls in purgatory and, and for all the sacrifice in the world. He was not famous in his time. He was just another smart scholastic monk. This is what he was. And and I think that he honestly believed that, you know, at the end of his life, he actually asked people to burn all of his manuscripts.
0: It's all straw. I mean, it's,
1: it, it's, it's all, all straw. straw. He had a vision. He had a vision. He had a, a beatific vision. And he finally understood the things that he was struggling to understand with his earthly mind. And he said, burn all my manuscripts. Thank God they didn't. Because he thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to heaven. It's all going to be forgotten anyway. So I think that like Bach, he was just doing things for posterity, hoping that it would help other people, it would lift other people up, it would get people into heaven. But, but he thought that this was just his mortal coil.
0: Well, your Beethoven story is also wonderful. It's a wonderful book, Arthur. I could talk to you forever. I'm not going to. I want people to go to get the book. From Strength to Strength, Arthur, continued success on your book tour. Come back when you're done with part one and we'll re-energize it with part two.
1: Thank you, Hugh. God bless you.
0: You too. Thank you. And God bless you, Arthur Brooks, the book. From Strength to Strength, go and get it. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.